Are you self-centered? You might think that's a bit of a rude question to ask. But then you might go on to say, well, since you have asked, no, I'm not self-centered. I take an interest in others. I do things for others. And I'm here in church, aren't I? To worship God. No, I'm not self-centered. To be self-centered is to be wrapped up in ourselves. It's to be self-absorbed. And most of us probably don't think of ourselves as being like that. But the passage we're going to look at this morning might get under our skin a little bit. It might challenge our opinion of ourselves a little bit. And I hope it will also help us as men and women who don't want to be self-centered. John's Gospel is all about Jesus. And our passage this morning tells us He must become greater. We're going to read from John chapter 3, beginning at verse 22, and reading down to the end of the chapter in verse 36. If you're looking for that in the church Bible, it's page 1066, and in the larger print Bibles, 1651. Just to remind ourselves where we've got to before we read this, the first part of chapter 3 recorded a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a religious man. He was a prominent figure in society. And Jesus challenged Nicodemus all the same with the reality that his religious life and his standing in society counted for nothing when it came to entering the kingdom of God. To enter the kingdom, Jesus said, you need to be born again, supernaturally. You need to be renewed by God himself. That conversation with Nicodemus took place in Jerusalem, but the passage we're about to read takes place away from the city, and it reintroduces us to someone we met back in chapter 1, a man called John, but not the John who wrote this gospel. This is John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. So let's read from chapter 3, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because there was plenty of water, and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. 
That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on them. This is God's word. It divides into two sections, and the first is about the joy of being less important than Jesus. At least that's what this passage is pointing us to, but that is not where it starts. It starts with people who are bitter and resentful about being less important than Jesus. When we first met John the Baptizer in chapter 1, we learned about his work. He called people to repentance. To repent is to acknowledge our sin and rebellion against God. It's to own up to it. But in fact, repentance goes further than just acknowledging our sin. It involves genuine sorrow over our sin. It involves a commitment to turn from our sin to God. That's what John preached, that's what he called people to do, and when they did repent, then John baptized them. And he described his work as preparing the way for the Lord. When God's Messiah arrived, those who repented at John's preaching would then be ready to follow the Messiah. And in chapter 1, John pointed to Jesus and said, he's the one I'm preparing the way for. Jesus is the one who will deal with your sin. He's the one who will take it away, and he's the one who will give you new life. John made it clear that in the grand scheme of things, he and Jesus had different roles to play. John prepared the way for forgiveness and new life. Jesus arrived to provide forgiveness and new life. Very good. They each have their role in God's work of salvation. But what we find here in our passage is that Jesus doesn't seem to be sticking to his role. Jesus and his disciples are doing exactly the same thing as John and his disciples are doing. You can see that if you look again at verses 22 and 23. Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. Now chapter 4 will clarify that it was actually Jesus' disciples who did the baptizing, but even so Jesus is with them. And this is a replication of what John is doing with his disciples. 
Matthew's gospel adds another detail for us. Matthew tells us in these initial stages of his ministry, Jesus is even preaching exactly the same message as John. Matthew chapter 3 gives us John's message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Then Matthew 4 gives us Jesus' message. And if we had a set of drums here, I'd ask for a drum roll at this point. Here's Jesus' message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus is replicating what John is doing. And he's even come out to do it where John does it, in the countryside. It's almost like Jesus is deliberately setting up in competition to John. And that is exactly how John's disciples interpret what's going on. Look at verse 25. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. We're not told much about the argument John's disciples have with this unnamed Jew. We know from chapter 1 the Jewish authorities queried John's authority to baptize, and especially to go and do it out in the countryside away from the temple. So this argument about ceremonial washing is likely more of the same thing. They're asking, how does John have the right to break away from the more traditional Jewish practices? And John's disciples have waded into an argument about that. No doubt defending John and what they are doing with John. But that argument is not what's significant here. In verse 26, we discover it's not only that certain Jew who's making them feel defensive about their work. They're feeling pretty irritated with Jesus. They're so irritated they won't even mention his name. In verse 26, they call him that man, the one you testified about, the one you said would deal with people's sin and baptize them with the Holy Spirit. Well, John, he seems to have decided to elbow into what we're doing. He's set up in competition to us, and he's stealing the show, John. Everyone is going to him. Why is he doing this? This is our thing. Why can't he stick to what he's supposed to do? And let us do our thing. Does he think he doesn't have enough prominence already? That he has to be first in our little patch as well? Our little area of significance? Why can't he leave our bit alone? He's got all the rest. These disciples of John have heard what he said about Jesus. No doubt they're happy for Jesus to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No doubt they're happy for Jesus to baptize with the Holy Spirit. But when Jesus seems to think that even this area is for him, when he comes 
and dominates the one thing that makes them feel significant, then these disciples are not happy. They view Jesus as a rival. And at this point, it might be worth asking, could you and I ever have a touch of what these disciples have? Do you think we might ever have a dash of their resentment in our hearts? Might it ever be worth asking ourselves, are you Jesus' rival? We might think, be serious. Me? Jesus' rival? No chance. Okay. But are there ever times when you feel, does even this bit of my life have to be about what Jesus wants? I go to church, I pray, I give, and not just money, I give my time to serve Jesus in various ways. I let Jesus dominate in so much of my life. Does he have to dominate my decisions and my actions in this little area too? Can't there just be one little patch of life where I'm the big thing and the main thing? Where I'm the main consideration? Just one little bit? Isn't that what these disciples of John are doing? And don't we all have our own version of this? Why should Jesus muscle in on my sexual decisions? Or my decision about how to marry? Or my financial decisions? Or my parenting? My career? My retirement? Or this dispute I'm having with that person? Does Jesus really have to be the most important one in all those areas? And it's not just about the decisions we make. It's also about the outcomes we expect in our life. Don't we all at some level expect our lives to go well? According to our own definition of going well. Don't we expect our plans to be blessed and our hopes to come to fruition? But the reality is the universe is not set up to bless our plans. It is not set up so that our efforts flourish. The universe is not set up so that we get our dreams. The universe is set up so what Jesus does is blessed. It's set up so that his work flourishes and his plans succeed. Life is about Jesus, not about us. And the Christian life is about finding our joy in that reality. 
not getting bitter about it. The Christian life is about the outlook we see in John the baptizer. Look how he responds to his disciples who are so resentful about Jesus taking the preeminence in what they thought was their thing. Look how he responds in verse 27. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. And it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. In verse 27, John says, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. In other words, all of our lives have been given to us by God. And that includes the place our lives have in God's plan. And God's plan is that everything gives way to Jesus. Every life, every area of every life is there to support Jesus' rise, to support his increase. Until the day when everything finally is under Jesus' feet. The day when every knee bows to him and every tongue acknowledges that he is Lord. That's what you and I are here for. We're not here to find our own little patch where we have our chance to shine. We're here so that Jesus can shine even in our little patch. We're here so he can have the limelight in our life. So our life can contribute to his rise and increase. That's the reality. You and I can either get bitter about that reality like John's disciples did, or we can find our joy in it like John did. That's the alternative. Are we going to be Jesus' rival or his friend? Now, in terms of the unfolding plan of God's salvation, John actually had a very special role. He was to prepare the way for the Messiah, as he says here. And to explain how John sees his role, he points as an illustration to the best man at a wedding. The friend who attends the bridegroom was the ancient equivalent of a best man. And I think we can all see, for a best man to expect to be the main event at the wedding would be silly. And then for the best man to try and make himself the main event would be a very sad misunderstanding of what was going on. And John says... I do understand what's going on. Jesus is the bridegroom. So my role is to attend him. It's not my day. It's his. 
And so John says, I am full of joy when Jesus, the bridegroom, arrives and takes the attention. I'm happy when he gets the bride. Because that's actually what it's all about. By calling Jesus the bridegroom, John anticipates the way the rest of the New Testament will speak of Jesus. He is the bridegroom and his people, the church, is the bride. So we find the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth and saying, I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Paul had a key role in the growth of the early church, not just in Corinth, but all over the place. But see how just like John the baptizer, Paul knew he wasn't the main event. Like John, Paul saw himself as a friend of the bridegroom. His role was to deliver the bride to Jesus in good shape. And at the end of the New Testament, the Apostle John is shown a vision of the day when that becomes reality. When Christ is united to his perfected, radiant bride. He sees the church in Revelation chapter 21, which he calls the wife of the Lamb. And the church is prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. That is where history is going That's what God's plan is moving towards every day. So when John says about Jesus in verse 30, he must become greater, John does not mean I must try to make him greater. John means it is the determined will of God that Jesus, his son, will become greater. When the New Testament tells us that something must happen, that's what it means. Last week, back in verse 14 of chapter 3, we heard that Jesus must be lifted up on a cross. It was part of God's plan that Jesus died on the cross for our sin. But here in verse 30, this is equally part of God's plan. That beyond the cross, Jesus will not only be raised to life, he will be raised ultimately to the very highest place. As history moves forward, Jesus must become greater. Both Paul and John the baptizer knew they had supporting roles in that unfolding plan. They knew even in their own lives They were not the main event. Their lives were not about them. The purpose of their lives was to support Jesus Christ succeeding and shining and becoming the center of attention. Paul and John knew that and they found their joy in having that role and that purpose. They were glad to be less important than Jesus. They were glad to have the honor of attending the star of the show. 
even though it meant letting go of dreams for their own personal success, even their own personal comfort. For Paul, attending Jesus the bridegroom meant years of prison. It meant plenty of vicious beatings from the enemies of Jesus. For John, attending Jesus the bridegroom meant he got his head chopped off by stupid King Herod. In one sense, John and Paul both lost a lot. But they both testified, it is our joy to let other dreams and hopes die so we can attend Jesus the bridegroom. Paul and John the baptizer had unique roles as they attended Jesus. But you and I have roles too. And they are all supporting roles. There's no day of our lives that is our day. We may take a day off, but even that is not our day. All the days of our lives are about Jesus, not us. And by that I mean in God's plan. All the days of our lives are about Jesus, not us. We'll hear more about that in a moment. But here the challenge is, given that's what our lives are actually about, since we've all been given the role of supporting Jesus, the star of the show, how are we going to respond to that reality? Are we going to get bitter and resentful and wish that we could shine instead of Jesus? Or will we pause to consider that actually he is the most important one? And he deserves that our lives should be all about him. Instead of resenting the fact that Jesus is more important than us, will we choose to find our joy in the fact that the purpose of our lives is to enable him to shine and become greater? Will we choose to live by John's motto? Jesus must become greater, I must become less. Even in the little things of my life, even the private things, he must become more prominent and I must become less prominent. And the wonderful bonus of living by that motto is that the more it becomes true in our lives, the more joyful our lives become. The more you and I struggle to become greater ourselves, the more we struggle to get our own way and carve out our own little space to shine, the more we fight for that, the more frustrated and jaded we become. the more of a disappointment our lives become to us. Why? Why does it work that way? It works that way because in God's plan, Jesus must become greater. And God's plan never, ever fails. So when we resist his plan, we experience endless frustration. 
We end up with endless chips in our shoulder. And if we resist to the end, we will experience a whole lot worse than just frustration and chips in our shoulder. That's explained to us in the last section of this passage. Having heard about the joy of being less important than Jesus, verses 31 to 36 emphasize the certainty of being less important than Jesus. They show us that no amount of kicking and screaming on our part is going to change our role in God's plan. No amount of determination on our part can change the plan. We cannot be the stars of the show even a little bit. Last week at the end of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, we heard about God the Father's love for the world. Now we hear about the Father's love for his Son. And while it is wonderfully true the Father does love the world, it is equally true he is determined that his Son will be the star of the show in this world. Look again at those final verses from verse 31. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. In verse 31, we know the one who comes from above is Jesus. We know that because that's how he described himself earlier in chapter 3 when he spoke to Nicodemus. And because Jesus is the one who comes from above, he is above all. Meaning he is more worthy than all. And also he is more trustworthy than all. Notice verse 33 says, no one accepts his testimony. But clearly that doesn't mean absolutely no one accepts his testimony. There are exceptions. We know that because verse 33 says, whoever has accepted Jesus' testimony has certified that God is truthful. Why? Because, verse 34, Jesus speaks the words of God. Of course, the Old Testament prophets did that too, but Jesus is different. The prophets had a measure of God's Holy Spirit. They had enough to carry out their role in God's plan in their day to deliver the specific message God had for them. But Jesus, notice, was given the Spirit without limit. He has unlimited authority to speak for his Father. On every occasion, into every circumstance, and into every culture. There's never a time when Jesus' authority wobbles. His words, 
His testimony about God and heaven and salvation, that testimony is always trustworthy. And in fact, verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. That cannot be said of anyone else in history. The book of Revelation shows Jesus as the one who puts into practice the Father's will for history. That work of unfolding history has been placed into Jesus' hands. Meaning he has the authority and power to do it. Yes, the Father loves the world. But before the world even existed, the Father loved the Son. For eternity, the Son has been close to the Father's heart. The Father has placed the whole world in Jesus' hands. And it is the Father's will that one day the whole world will bow the knee to Jesus and confess that he is Lord. As we've already said, that is where history is going. And so for every one of us, there is absolute certainty of being less important than Jesus. We will not outshine him. Is that bad for our mental health? Not at all. The very best thing for our mental health is to stop fighting to be the celebrity of our own life. To stop living like life is all about us. There's nothing better for our mental health than to begin to leave our self-centeredness behind. And let Jesus take central place. There's nothing nothing better for our mental health than to find our place and our purpose among those who joyfully attend Jesus. Who find their joy in that just like the best man finds his joy in attending the bridegroom. And the wonderful thing is those who look to Jesus for salvation And live their lives for him, learning to love him as the one who must become greater. Those men and women will actually be part of the beautiful bride presented to Jesus when he returns. It's shaking John's illustration up a little bit. Those who attend Jesus will be part of his bride. And in contrast to that, verse 36 tells us those who fight to outshine Jesus, be the star of their own little show, those who insist and continue to insist that they must become greater, well, they get nothing but God's wrath in the end. God's wrath is not a temper tantrum. It is connected to his love for his son. When an already guilty world rejects God's precious son, the one who was given for the world's salvation, 
Well then, what else could there be for us but wrath from this Father who loves His Son? But as we believe in the Son as our only hope, as we take joy in Him being above all in our life, as we do that, we are on our way to sharing in the good things the Father has prepared for His Son. So let's ask God to help us so that we become men and women who find our greatest joy in the truth that Jesus Christ must become greater. Our final songs remind us that Jesus is above all. And that amazingly, one day his friends who attend him will reign with him. It's saying Jesus shall take the highest honor and then he shall reign.
The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Amen.